our whole world is customizable. And one of the things that marriages, marriages teaches us is what to live with what isn't customizable. What does it mean to grow into someone and with someone, even in the midst of their changing, even in the midst of your changing? And I think that that's a really powerful thing. Well, friends, welcome back to the podcast. And you'll only hear me say the podcast for a little while longer because we have a name. It'll be coming soon. I know you're all waiting with bated breath. I could say so many people have been asking me like, like the kids do on the Instagram when they want to talk about something. So many people have been asking me what the name is, but the reality is not a single one of you have asked. And so you may not care that much, but you know, it's my thing. I got the microphone. I care. We're renaming it. We'll put it out soon. But that was just Brian Bantam. We are going to get to hear from Gail and Brian Bantam in a little bit. They've got a new book coming out called Choosing Us. And Gail has been a friend for a little while. And this was my first opportunity to get to meet her husband, Brian. And I got so much from my conversation with them. We start off a little bit talking about some of like their uniquenesses. So we talk a bit about for Gail, what it's like being a woman leading in a church that's progressive, what that's looked like for her. We talk for Brian about some of the work that he's created around the mulatto Jesus and entering into the life of God, which is a life, he says, of intermixture, tension, myth-breaking, and constant, ever-unfolding newness. Ah, ah, ah. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Uh, we talk about marriage, because that's what their book's about. Their book is about mutual flourishing in marriage, uh, being people of difference in the midst of that. And so talk about the things that we bring into marriage. Talk about, like, how do you actually create space for mutual flourishing in marriage, where you're trying to have a marriage where there are uh, equal partners, where it's not not a hierarchical marriage, but like then how does that actually even practically work itself out? And even I love we get into a bit of the messiness of seasons where one partner sacrifices in order to let another partner flourish. And I got to tell you, friends, that there are not a lot of books that I'm aware of that are written in the Christian space that are about how to have egalitarian marriages, marriages of co-equal partnership, where it's not that the husband is the head, or but instead is actually that, like, no, no, actually, the two of us work together, that we're an equal partnership together, and how does that sort of work itself out? And so I'm, I'm excited for this conversation, excited for you all to get to hear this. I hope that this is beneficial, both, like, for those of you that are married, we even talk a little bit about some of the uniquenesses of being married in ministry. So for those of you that are in ministry and are married, hope some of that's helpful for you. I hope it's also helpful for you. Like I think their work is going to be a resource in churches to just provide another way. I know a lot of churches have even stopped um, having some marriage stuff because we're like, like, I don't know how to do this well. I don't know how to have these conversations well because the stuff that's being put out in a lot of times is just not helpful for the kind of conversation we want to have. So hopefully, uh, not only the conversation we have here, but even the book, Choosing Us, coming out March 1st, uh, hopefully that that can be helpful for you as well. Uh, today is February 14th, and so I realized, like, how lovely would it be? Look at me, look at me getting all, like, professional here on Valentine's Day, putting this out as well. So, uh, so yeah, like, we're just stepping it up a notch here on the podcast. Now, one thing that I do want to just briefly get into before we get into the podcast is uh, I end up in places 
where folks are asking me, and now I'm going to sound like the thing that I just disparaged a minute ago, but where folks are asking me like, hey, like, how do you actually earn income? I, I was just with a church this weekend in Park City. And actually, uh, as this is going to drop, I'll have, I'll actually be up in the Bay Area with another church. And sometimes when I'm in these spaces, they're like, so you're like doing these podcasts, you're connecting with these pastors, like, how do you earn income? And like, honestly, some of the way that I earn income is by, by preaching places. And so some folks will bring me in. And if you're a pastor and I can be helpful to you, I'd love to chat about that. I've actually, I've actually got, uh, I set aside weekends, a number of weekends every year, and I'm mostly filled up for the year, but in the fall, I've got some, some weekends that start opening up again. So if you want to have that conversation, great. I also get an opportunity to get to consult with churches in some different areas. I get to coach pastors in some different ways. I do a bunch, like I, I genuinely have nine different streams of income, but the one that I kind of want to highlight just really briefly with you all is one of the ways I get to do some of the work that I do is because some of you generously support me and the work that I'm doing. So I have been engaging with post-evangelical churches and pastors to help try and uh, create connection in that space, to help try and resource that space, to help try and catalyze what's happening there. And so I try to spend some of my time in doing that. And some of you have been incredibly helpful and generous to help that happen. So there's information in the show notes if you want to continue doing that, if if you want to contribute to that, if you want to help churches that are kind of emerging in this post-evangelical space. And if you wonder what that is, I'd love to have a conversation with you. But but probably if you're tuning in and you're listening to this, you have some sort of resonance with churches that are in that space. And it's a thing I could talk for a while about it. And I probably will at some point, I'll probably do a podcast where I'll spend some more time unpacking the work that's happening there, unpacking what's happening in the post-evangelical space, spending a bit more time, like like just kind of sharing some of the reality of what's happening there, some of the reality of what's building there and what we're seeing happen there. And so I'd love to get to tell you more about that. But all of that to say, if you want to help support the work that I'm doing, I would be incredibly grateful. You can find the information about how to do that in the show notes. But regardless of that, I'm excited for you to get to spend some time here with Gail and Brian Bantam. We are talking today with Gail Song Bantam and Brian Bantam, who I believe are sitting in the same house in different rooms <laughs> on different. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Right. I love it. We're going to we're going to talk about like stuff about marriage here in a bit. And so I'm assuming one of the marriage strategies is like we need our own spaces and we need to be away from each other while we're talking about marriage. Is that <laughs> it's, it's all about it's all about sound quality. It's all about the aesthetic. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, Gail, you are the lead pastor at Quest Church in Seattle. And Brian, you're a theology professor at Garrett Seminary. You also have uh, some kids I want to get to hear about, and you have built a life together. But before we get into some of that, can I ask you each just like a brief question? Like, I want to hear a little bit about each of your work, and then I want to talk a bit about, you've got a book coming out called Choosing Us, um, and I want to get to talk a bit about that. But Gail, you transitioned from being an executive pastor to becoming a lead pastor of this great church up in Seattle. And I'm just kind of curious 
What was for you, what was unexpected about that transition? You already had a lot of leadership responsibility and weight, but you hadn't been in that lead role. I, I'd just kind of be curious, like what, yeah, what was unexpected? What did you learn in that? Uh, I think right off the bat, I had been there for 10 years prior as worship pastor, executive pastor, all the, all that good stuff. I think what was a little bit shocking and unexpected was while I was the executive path pastor for so many years and knew so many people in that congregation, um, the revelation that people can believe women can be leaders and pastors. And yet when a woman becomes the lead pastor and the main face of an organization, there's another barrier. Hmm. And I, I ran into that a little bit, taking on this new position as a lead pastor that was a little bit shocking, truthfully, even for a progressive church like Quest. I, I was just, I actually just put out a podcast recently with my friend April Diaz, leads an organization called Azer and Co. And, and we were talking a little bit about egalitarian churches that aren't as egalitarian as they think they are, that like ha hold a theology of that, but the practice of it is a different thing, right? Like it's, it's one thing to hold that idea. It's another thing to like try to, to try to actually live that out. And it doesn't always work out the way that like it is in our heads. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. There's something to be said about, we believe in women being pastors and the majority of our pastoral staff being women, as long as there's a guy at the top. There's some, some sort of weird safety in that for many people or comfortability in that for many people. So that's been a journey. Oh gosh, man. Maybe we can do another podcast where we talk about that. I would love to, like, we're not here to spend all of our time on that, but I would love to hear more about that sometime. And, um, yeah. And then, Brian, you're this theology professor at Garrett Seminary, and I was telling you before we started recording that I had heard just some really great things about your work and the work that, that you've done. And particularly, I was telling you about a friend of mine sat in on, I don't know if it was a lecture or maybe your dissertation defense at Duke Divinity, and told me about, he said, hey, Brian has done this work on what he called the mulatto Jesus. That's super fascinating. Do you mind giving us, I mean, this is the worst thing to ask somebody who has spent years and years working on a thing and then say, like, can you give us the the 60 second thing of like, of what that's about? But, you know, can you give us the 60 second thing of what that's <laughs> So basically, the the work came out of my own experience as a Black mixed man and the kind of constant tensions that I felt kind of in the world. And, and a lot of those tensions were really exemplified in the language of the mulatto. You know, the 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 Black mixed figure, often, oftentimes in times of slavery, who was the child, the product of rape, essentially, um, but yet, in a very weird way, those society also emerged where they distinguished themselves from oftentimes the field slaves. You'd have the house slaves and the field slaves. And, and so the work is really trying to make sense of, theologically, what does it mean? What do those in-between people and spaces mean? And what, and, but even more than that, what are the myths and the purities that create the in-between spaces, the in-between people? 
And if we think about the in-between, the myths that create the in-between people, is it possible that we can also see how the myths of what God is and what humanity is actually create a problem or difficulty for understanding who Jesus is? And so Jesus as mulatto, again, is only created out of this idea or the, the problem of Jesus's mixture or in-betweenness or God-human relationship only become comes out of these myths or the impossibility, pure, impossible purities of God as God and human as human, and neither of those can mix. And yet the incarnation is this interruption of a person in the incarnation who holds these two realities and shows them both, so shows the myth to be what it is and what does it mean to live inside of that tension. And then for, for human discipleship, what does it mean to live into that kind of life? And so the suggestion is that when we go, when we enter into the life of God, we enter into a life of intermixture, which is a life of tension, myth-breaking, and constant, ever-unfolding newness. Hmm. I'm like tearing up as you're talking about this, and it's really beautiful. And we need to do another longer conversation too around that. Like that's <laughs> both of these are making me really interested in the things that we're not here to talk about. But I am super interested in what we're here to talk about. So you have written a book that's coming out on March 1st, right? Is that, that's right. Is that right? It's called Choosing Us. And the the tagline is marriage and mutual flourishing in a world of differences. And so I have, I've got a bunch of questions that that this raises for me, but I thought maybe where we could start is I would be curious to hear sort of the origin stories of this. Partly because I think of a marriage book that's being written for a sort of like larger popular audience. And Gail, like I think of you as somebody who's got this really thoughtful, prophetic, rich voice. And Brian as this like theologically nuanced person. And then to like, I don't think of those things when I think of like the marriage book category. <laughs> So I'm super curious, like, yeah, how did this like sort of get generated for you all? Mike, that's actually a really good question because that's the question we ask ourselves as well. <laughs> so it actually began with somebody reaching out to me from Brazos asking if I'm interested in writing a book. And at the time I had just taken on this new role as lead pastor. My life was full. I couldn't even think about writing a book at that time. And I said, you know, I'll reach out when I'm ready. And then 2020 rolls around. The beginning of the year just really felt like this intense a yes to write a book. And I woke up one day and I was like, we need to write a marriage book, Brian. Now, if if anybody who knows me well knows that I do not want to write a marriage. I don't, I don't want to be known for writing a marriage book. I don't even read marriage books. And the thought that that was the first book that I would write, right? Brian's already written uh, a couple books, was simultaneously frightening and exciting. And I looked at Brian and I was like, we, got, we have to write this marriage book. And then the pandemic hit. And we had gotten approved. We, we got our contract. And I was like, oh, crap, we're writing a marriage book in a pandemic. But when I thought about it, I was like, you know what? Everything that I do, the person that I have become 
25 years in marriage. We met when we were 19. My mother had just died. His father had just died. We had, we got married in college. That reality of who I am is grounded in my relationship with Brian. Just it, that's just the fact, or as the young people say, no cap, right? I mean, so it makes sense that whatever book comes from here, here on out, that it emerges from who I am and who we are together. And I'm grateful for the ways that we chose to write this book in a different kind of way, including our histories, stories of race and gender, things that we haven't seen in other marriage books. It's real, lots of stories. It's narrative driven. So I'm excited about it, but that's how it started. And Brian just said, yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. How did that feel like switching to a popular culture level? Is that fair enough to say about like kind of who the book's written to? Like it's written for a broad audience, mm-hmm. right? Maybe That's popular right. culture is the wrong way to say it, but moving into sort of that level from writing like theological tomes. Well, I, I in a lot of ways, it, it's I've my writing has already been kind of moving that direction anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my second book, The Death of Race, was a trade book written for for everyday folks. I write in Christian Century really regularly. Sure. You know, I preach, you know, here and there as part of my responsibilities at at church. So, and that's the writing that I love to But what's interesting though is like even even while you said, you know, like we're not here to talk about the those kind of this idea of Gail entering into ministry or like interracial, but in a lot of ways those realities are actually fused in in the book. You can't really tease them out. And I think one thing that I've learned from Gail over time, and we talk about this a little bit in the book, is sometimes she, she throws, she's always throwing out ideas because she's a very generative person. And I learned really early on, like some of those ideas are just being thrown out to see what sticks. Some of them are just thought process. She's just processing. So if you go with whatever idea she says on a certain day, you probably sh- you need to be ready to change your mind because she was just processing. So it's always kind of figuring out. But then every once in a while, she wakes up and she's just ready to do something. Like this, the spirit kind of like lit a fire. There's this kind of sheen in her eyes, the way she carries her body. I don't, I don't know what it is, but we figured <laughs> it out where she says, Brian, I woke up this morning and I think we need to write a book. And at that point, I'm just like, oh, I guess we're writing a book then. It's not really a conversation. And, and then what ends up happening though, is like, we so well, what do we write about then? And I think the thing that we, we found was our relationships with the people that we knew. I mean, so many young couples who were like in positions that were really similar to ours, but you know, really early on, we're like, well, what would we want them to hear? Whether they were in interracial relationships, whether they were, you know, black folk who was raised in a white suburb and married to, you know, a, a black Caribbean woman. Like, you know, so there's these cultural kind of questions. There's questions of in-betweenness that they're carrying with them. They have deep commitments to to both people flourishing, but but we don't know what that looks like. You know, there's no models and there's no guidebooks. And especially too in the in the in a time where marriage is kind of seen as a kind of traditionalist, like garbage fire right and so i think that was for us to say you know we've we must have figured something out so let's 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 try to figure out what it is that that we're doing and just try to offer it to other folks as best we can yeah 
Yeah. What are some of those things that you're hopeful that like, say a mixed race couple is, is getting out of this, what would be helpful for them to know and to hear? I would say first, just to clarify that this book is not just for mixed race couples, but, but by nature of us being interracial, I hope that interracial couples or intercultural couples as mm. well, A, would, would be encouraged that they're not do they're not in this alone, that all of us are constantly navigating our own identities, our ever-changing identities, and that it is possible, that it's possible. Because I think there was there were some seasons in our marriage where it was hard. It was a struggle, and we didn't have mentors that looked like us or that had gone before us to kind of tell us, listen, you got this. So I, I think, but that's my greatest hope that as couples read this, that they see a little bit of themselves in our story. Yeah. Cause it's narrative driven. You're going to find like, oh yeah, here's this piece that I relate with. And it might not be, it might not be because you're in a interracial marriage. It might be because you're trying to figure out like one of the things I'm kind of curious to push into a little bit is I'm curious a bit about how your marriage works in ways that would be helpful for us who are trying to pursue marriages of mutual flourishing, marriages that are egalitarian. Because in the vast majority of sort of the Christian marketplace of of things that are being talked about, preached, seminars, books that have to do with marriage are largely coming out of a complementarian viewpoint. They're largely right. coming out of whether it's like going strongly hierarchical that the man has the final decision in all these things and woman, you know, needs to stay at home and has these roles to even just where it's like, well, there's these different like gender experiences where what a man needs is different than what a woman needs. And so we're going to sort of soft pedal complementarian pictures by saying like there are these different like experiences that of what a uh, a woman needs to provide in the marriage for her spouse as opposed to what a man needs to provide in a marriage for his spouse. So anyways, I would be curious, even like, just like, what are some of, this is probably a lot of questions in one, but like, what are some of the toxic messages that have been out there that we need to sort of like disrupt and unpack? What are some better ways of thinking about and looking at marriage? What are, maybe we start pushing into that a little bit and we'll well, you know, I think it's interesting because one of the things that you talk about kind of one of the themes that's in the book, and this relates to these kind of messages, is is this kind of theme of, like, y'all are going to change. Hmm. I think so often we think of, oh, this is who I am, and I'm going to marry this dream person, and they're going to be great, and then we're going to be complete, and our life is just going to be happily ever after. And and nobody accounts for the fact that the whole thing's getting built on sand, and it's all getting eroded and shifted around and 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 you're not going to be the same thing in 10 5 10 15 years and and what does it look like and i think for for Gail and i at least i think one of the benefits of of being married so young was we had no we had, we had we had no clue who we were and we and we were pretty clear about that and i think we ourselves also had imbibed a lot of those toxic messages ourselves. So I was like, I came to Christ when I was 17 we, or 16. We met when we were 19, but it was in a Southern Baptist church. 
and with all of the complementarian theology. And I thought I was the head, even though I grew up in a house full of strong women. But I just thought biblically, that's what it was. And then you meet this strong woman. You you meet a woman whose mother went to seminary. And all of a sudden, you got to like rethink some stuff because of the person that you're you're kind of with. And what happens is that you know, you never just change a belief, but the ways that you interact and the ways that you embody the world, the the people you see around you starts to change. And so I think that once that kind of little pillar fell, you know, all of a sudden it was always having to rethink our relationship with one another over and over and over again. And, and I was, is that something, oh, can I ask, is that something that you were consciously doing that it was like, we need to have these like talks at the kitchen table at 11 o'clock at night to work this stuff out? Or is it just kind of like subconsciously like working itself out in the midst of your relationship? I would say that from my perspective, there were many a times when I think when, when people are formed in a particular way, myself included, but then you realize that's not right. And then you also, as a woman, you also know that there's something more for you. And God has called you to things that are more than what you had heard. I think there's a time when we have to speak truth and we have to kind of wedge our way in and say, listen, like, I know this is what we have been doing, but I wonder if there's a possibility here. So there were a lot of conversations that we engaged, like pretty spontaneously because of what something happened or a conversation we had. And I think those are the moments that when we engage them well and we listen to each other well and we articulated ourselves well, over time began to kind of open the door for something new. And and I always say that I think for me and for women in general that I've talked to, this notion that women feel like they have to hold everything together is a lie. And I think that's the expectation on us, especially for women who want to work or have a career outside the home. I think there's this notion that, oh, well, we got to manage here and there. But there's I, I, there's a chapter in the book that I call glass bulbs and rubber balls, where there's some things that you can just let let drop and it's okay. It's going to bounce back. And then some things in life are very fragile. And you, together as a couple, you identify those and you care for those in particular season, those ebb and flow throughout your life together. So yeah, I don't think it's ever a one moment aha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. but a constant willingness to engage and and talk through some of those things. No, that's helpful. Thanks. Uh, Brian, I'm sorry to have cut you off. I was, I was just kind of curious. I wanted to push in just a little bit because in the same way, Gail, when you're talking earlier about like you can hold this theology of women being in this place and then, like, the practices don't always, like, lead us there. I'm kind of uh, curious about some of the, like, particulars of, like, holding a view that our marriage should be this thing of mutuality, but sometimes our practices don't always work itself out in that way. And so I'm, I was just kind of curious, like, yeah, how did that, how did that start to play itself out? How did you start to figure that out? But, yeah, I'm sorry I had cut you off. No, no, I mean, I just want to, I think, what what Gail's point is is as I think is really is is the big one that you know every once in a while we do have those the kind of in, like what 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 should we what should it look like and then 
then there are these moments that are usually under duress where you're like, this is not how it should look like. <laughs> and then, well, why is that the case? And I think both of us have had the benefit of of school and study where, you know, I know I know the history of race. I know the history of masculinity. But at the same time, you know, when you have kids and you're just, you know, the first kid comes and you're just trying to scramble as best you can to make sure that everybody's fed and everyone's reasonably clean and, and all that, then it's really easy to fall back into these kind of patterns that that society that the kind of social structures just assume should be the case and i think that that's what we have this we tell this one story in the book of kind of cooking and you know for the longest time i mean we just kind of you know like gail gail did the cooking and it was delicious and wonderful and there was this one mo one day it was about 10 years ago now i think and i came home and from school from a day of teaching and i was like what's for dinner and Gail's like, I've been in this meeting, that meeting. I haven't gotten groceries. I haven't started to think about it. And I was like, well, what are we going to eat then? And then so there became this conversation about, well, we're going to need to divide these. We're going to need to divide this up a little bit. So she taught me a few th how to eat, how to cook a few things. And, you know, and I was and I was doing it. And but what I found though was that I actually really liked it. And so I kind of said like, oh, I'll I'll do I'll do dinner tonight. Um, I'll do it. And then we like, and then we come back a later and, and talk and, and Gail's like, well, you know what? I was like, well, don't you, don't you like cooking? She's like, no, I've never liked it. I'm like, wait, really? She's like, no, I hate it. I like eating, but I don't like, I don't like cooking. And here it was that I actually ended up really enjoying the process. I like, I like cooking more than eating, you know, but so because of those, those systems, we actually had li been living in a kind of less than flourishing slightly diminished kind of way of being because we had never even asked the question about it. But and I think, and so now, and I, but I think that's kind of typical of what our relationship has been is to feel out the water at the points of tension. You know, that's an opportunity to talk about, you know, who we are and who we're becoming and who we want to be. And sometimes it, sometimes those are really beautiful and sometimes they're really painful conversations. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, how do you feel like you've been able to weather those things where maybe another marriage might be like, oh, this has been toxic and it's not going to work out and and then it ends up sort of like falling apart. But you guys have been from early on and especially even I'm seeing people that got married early on. My wife and I did also and we feel like we grew up together, we say, mm -hmm. like we feel mm -hmm. like we're different people than we would have been had we got married at like 30 which is neither good nor bad. It's just like what our experience was, right? But I, I've i experienced a lot of people having grown up in a Christian culture and gone to an undergraduate Christian college. We knew a lot of people that got married young, and a lot of them didn't continue on into being married. And How long have you guys been married? 25. Uh, 25 years. Yeah. So don't make it to that. I don't even know what the 25-year marriage thing is. Is it like gold or sparkles or something is like the 25-year marriage. I don't even know. But, yeah, but what's helped you? Because for some people having those tension points, that either becomes an explosion or it becomes a, I bury it and it doesn't get dealt with. And then it just leads to separation. What's helped you all? I would say our, our relationship's a little bit unique. And I don't say that it's better because I would never wish this on anybody, but 
our parents passed or were absent from our lives early on. Hmm. So we lost three of our four parents by the time we were 25. And then, you know, I was disowned by my father for many years, over 20 years, and he recently passed in 2017. And so as a couple, as a young couple, not having parents to kind of lean on to to show us or even to, uh, I don't know, there's a sense of the ground breaking underneath you for anyone who's lost a parent because it's the person for many people who've grown up with their biological parents. Like it's the person that you met, that you were with from the beginning of your existence. And so I think there's that element for us that we don't have another way. Hmm. We need to work this out because we only have each other. That is a very real kind of value that we have. So no matter what happens, not being together is not enough because there is a not just a marriage sensibility, but there's a familial hmm. connection that we are and we belong to one another that I think is maybe a little bit unique. And and I would just add to that. I mean, I think that even in the midst of all of the really hard conversations we've had, we've never, we've always trusted that the other person really is for us. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's never, I mean, even as like, I mean, as pissed off as I will be about something, even in the midst of the same argument over and over and over again, never in my wildest dreams would I ever think that Gail isn't for me. Now, I might be really clear that it, that I'm not meeting her needs in the ways that she needs, right? Or that maybe in certain cases, my needs are coming before hers in ways that are making her life difficult. But I, th- I think she also trusts that I'm always, I always want to be for her, even if I don't mm-hmm. necessarily know what that looks like right now. I mean, and we've always said when we talk with couples, more and more couples who are getting married in their 30s, you know, it takes our it takes us a little while to get our mind wrapped around it because we can't quite imagine people who are kind of quote unquote fully formed, have lived lives of independent, trying to merge those lives together. Although I will say, I mean, to be really transparent, we're like almost ne- empty nesters now. Have have more resources than we had when we were first married. So now we're we're kind of I think starting to discover a kind of independence hmm. that we never we never really had. In a, in a funny enough way, that's where actually a lot of the conflict is coming because I kind of want to be this person that I'm discovering myself to be this person and she's discovering herself to be that person. And we're kind of like, wait, these don't, these things don't match up in the ways that they always did when a date was going to the grocery store to get frozen pizza at 12 a.m. And so so there's still that trust that has to kind of be cultivated and nurtured even after 25 years. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And that's really important. I mean, it's, I'm sure that you've seen this as well, being in ministry that like, how many folks I've seen whose marriages end up disintegrating when their kids are in late high school and call it like, just around that time period around having been married 20 to 30 years. And, and they didn't figure out like how to be together, or they didn't figure out they, they were so dependent on on their relationship with their kids as the glue that held them together and all of that. Yeah. So I'm curious then with that, I think about the idea of mutual flourishing of you each having like things that you feel called to passionate about that are a bit independent of the other. And that I, I, 
I'm probably making some assumptions here, but that you have made space for each other to pursue those things and supported each other in those things. I'm kind of curious about like how the balance of that works when like you both have demanding careers, you both are public figures in some ways, you're both like pursuing these things that, that take a lot from you. I'm curious, like, what does that ebb and flow look like? How do you figure that out? There's a chapter in our book where we talk about our golden rule, which at the end of the day is we both have to feel a kind of peace in any big decision that's made. I think for both of us, we're very ambitious people, but we don't like some like the whole like limelight, the celebrity. That's not our goal. It's not to build platform, but it's to be mm. faithful, as faithful as we can be in the discipline we're in. And I think sometimes that means what's next. And I think in the midst of both of us trying to navigate, whether it's going to seminary for one and continuing to work over here, having kids while also pursuing ministry and calling, who's going to take the next move? So if there's a job offer that comes across our email and it's across the country, how do we how do we make a decision on that? Especially yeah. if one person is really thriving right now and maybe the other person isn't. And it's this it's this thing. I don't know where we came up with it, but it's this determination that we both have to feel peace in the decision because what we don't want years later is resentment. Um, because we do really want each other to be happy, flourish, and enjoy what we're doing. But I think there has there has been a lot of sacrifice, especially those of those of you who have had kids. Right there's there are things that you just can't control, and there are realities that are that are specific to a woman's body. If you given birth, that you just have to navigate, and you have to kind of say, well, this is just a season. But then having conversations of what does this look like? So what 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 will it look like two years from now, five years from mm -hmm. now? And just being really open and honest with each other about what you need and what you envision for yourself and for each other. Hmm. So as you're connecting with other couples that are younger, that you're whether it's you're mentoring them or they're coming to you for advice and things that you're all seeing. I'm I'm curious, what are some of the issues that are being raised that you are hopeful to be able to help with that you're like, oh, here here are some of the things that I'm seeing happen with couples today that yeah, that that you want to speak into. Well, I think I mean I think one of the really big ones is and this kind of relates back to this kind of balancing act is we we live in a world where every like advancement should be constant and and never ending right we're we're always progressing to the next level you know moving up 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 and there's no place for a kind of regression or for a pause and and i think a lot of the folks that we talk to they're just they're exhausted i mean they're so tired and then you kind of compound that with marriages where both people have to be progressing at the same time. And so I think one of the things that I think one of the misnomers of mutual flourishing is that, is that both people flourish at the same time. And yeah, talk and I think, about that. well, and I, th I think it's, it kind of even comes to one of this, one of these things. I mean, we were in Seattle 
I mean, frankly, probably longer than I wanted to be. You know, I was, I, you know, in the academy, you, you kind of move from job to job to job to job until you kind of hit the golden ring, the kind of endowed chair, you know, and you, you're sitting pretty. And usually it takes multiple moves to get, to get there. And for me, for a person whose identity was wrapped up in the job, come to Seattle, I thought, okay, a couple of years, let me get a couple of articles, book published, then we'll, we're on to the next thing. And then Gail's like, no, like, I'm, I'm good. Kids are good. We're not traipsing around the country to see y'all. And so that was a real struggle for me to say, what does it mean for me to just stay and sit still? And, and so what, what the gift of it, though, is the kind of, like, you know, when soil rests, is it lets you think about what else could be planted there. Hmm. And so I think sometimes we think about it like sacrifice, like, oh, I'm giving all this up so that you can go do this. Rather than thinking about those pauses as opportunities for us to really consider what it is that would really make us happy, what would really make us full. And, and the, the truth of it is, is that I was never going to be happy on that, on that hamster wheel. I could have gone, I could have gone all, made all the steps done exactly right, gotten to the big Research One University, the endowed chair, and I would have been miserable. And so the pause allowed me to say, what is it that makes me really happy? It's actually writing public pieces. It's writing poetry. It's doing novels. It's riding my bike. It's not letting my institution and my job determine everything about who I am. And I would have never had that had I not, not simply allowed myself to stop long enough so that Gail could flourish. And in Gail's flourishing and my pausing, I found out what it actually meant for me to flourish. And the reason why this is really important, because like in that conversation all the time, I would keep saying like, Gail, are we ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? And she's like, babe, like I'm just going to choose. And she's like, and there's kind of brutal honesty that, that cultivates trust. She said, I don't, if we, if we move, I can't trust that you're not going to be dissatisfied in the next job. And I was like, so pissed. It made me so mad every time she said it. Cause I was just like, no, I know what I want. <laughs> I know what I need. But the truth of it was, was that she did see something in me, even if she couldn't necessarily name exactly what it was. But later, like 10 years, like 10, 15 years later, when I said, okay, this is the move I think I want to make, that I feel like I'm ready to make. She's like, I see that. And I could trust that that's what, that she was seeing it and that she would support the sacrifices and the pauses and the complications that it would take for me to flourish in that season. And, and so it, so it all takes a little longer. And both of us were seeing folks, our colleagues, we felt like they were just like rocket ships. I mean, they were they were on the A train, no impediments, you know, the house, the everything. And we were kind of just sloughing along at these little tiny like stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. But at the end of the day, we really feel like we're whole people. And I think that's what we really hope to convey to 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 younger folks is don't fight the pauses and, and, and let the pauses speak. Let them breathe. Let them teach you something that you, that you wouldn't, wouldn't have otherwise heard. That's it's so good. I've, I love the reframing, too, of instead of thinking of it as like, oh, here's what I'm sacrificing here. But instead, like, there's some gift for me in this. And... Have it like being open to what it might do in me by 
creating space for the what the other person needs in that period. Like I'm, as you're describing that, I was thinking of all these times where I've often described my wife as Allison is somebody who has a high value of stability, and I don't necessarily have a high value of stability. And so there have been like times where there've been job offers, whatever. And I'm like, this is like, we're supposed to be going up and to the right. And we would go through a period of discernment and she'd be like, gosh, I just really feel like we're still supposed to be here. And, and it was often, and I was often like, no, 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 like that's not how like the job thing works. Right. And there's been this real gift of being rooted in a place for a long period of time that, that would not have been my experience if I had been driving it and that sort of, if I had been the like, well, yeah, I'm the man and head of household and I get to make this decision. And I love that. I love that reframing. Well, and I, and I should add, oh, go ahead, go. I also find it really interesting how even this conversation, it's very gendered. So like the man, so the man loves the reframing as a pause, whereas for women, it is sacrifice straight up right but i think it's more palatable to men that it's a pause let's let's just huh. take a pause and find your flourishing in in this pause whereas i think for many women i won't say all women but for many yeah. women those moments are we're sacrificing something and oftentimes many things and i think there's some some truth in there too which i find interesting so i just Why want to note that no, that's <laughs> well. I, I, this is what I. Uh, that's the other thing I was going to add, though, is that if we think about kind of the, the the kind of the social structure, all of the opportunities were always coming to me, right? That especially for you as a as a woman in ministry, you know, kind of those opportunities were really far and few between. Whereas it it was really easy for me to imagine something else because lots of people were sending things my way. And again, like the ways that the kind of social structure facilitates, you know, opportunities for me in different kinds of ways. And and I will say the pause and, the, and a pause, not in like, oh, I'm sitting drinking a pina colada, but like a pause in change diapers, cook to the point now where like, I actually don't trust theology if it isn't written by somebody who does laundry, cooks, writes down piece, writes down thoughts about God in between taking care of a parent or something, because there's something really powerful about having to care for someone and live in a real world while thinking about who God is that I've come to appreciate. And so that there is, there is sacrifice in the pause, but only if I embrace the fullness of what it means to support my partner so that they don't have to think about those things or I don't have to think about them as much and kind of get into the messiness of it. But yeah, this it's, it's totally gendered. It's totally gendered. Okay, so it, it leads me to like something that I feel like is super niche, but I'm I'm genuinely curious about. I have seen I have several friends that are strong female leaders in ministry, and one of the things that I have seen sometimes is husbands that become insecure by that, especially as their as their wife gets more of a platform than they do or is like they might be in the same sort of meetings and their wife's being looked to. And while they would say they have an egalitarian marriage, I see like insecurity start to come out in different sorts of ways. 
I would be curious to hear how how you all have kind of navigated what that's looked like for you. I, I can't speak for Brian on how he feels, but my experience of Brian, I think, in every space, even prior to me being a lead pastor, just, but just in every space has been my strongest supporter, encourager, my partner, and continues to just rock that space where sometimes I will even throw it to him, right? And he was like, no, and redirects it to me. And mm-hmm. there's something really special of about Brian that I don't ever question his insecurity around me. He is one of the most centered men that I've ever met. And so, and I don't just say that because he's my husband, but if I were to engage him and I, and I hear this of him from his colleagues as well, and I can amen that at every turn, but there's something unique about him that I just want to um, note. And I know not, not every man is like that or not every partner is like that. So I, I feel, I feel really privileged and grateful for him as a partner. So maybe then, Brian, maybe I could ask you is for people that are listening who have a spouse who is a strong leader, particularly for guys just out of the, I mean, I think that's been the reality of my experience. Guys who have a spouse who is a strong leader, what would be your words to them about how to engage in that well, what they need in themselves, what do they need for themselves to engage that well? I guess there's there's a couple of things. So one is, has to do with kind of one's own self-reflection and self-assessment. And then the other has to do with kind of understanding how people's bo- how one's body works in the world and the kind of history of, of bodies and genders generally. So I'd say the first, like the individual kind of reflective one is like, you just got to be real with yourself. You're not good at it, man. Hmm. <laughs> you, not only are you not good at it, because if you were good at it, you would have gotten the job <laughs> instead. You'd be the one doing it. And so if you're not, then not that you're not a good person. It's just like, just be real with your gifts. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that, again, kind of coming back to your earlier questions about the lies that, that kind of shape marriages is like that this this lie of masculinity that my job and my authority is what defines me, that other people think that I ought to have an answer and that I ought to be the one that makes the decision. And I want to, I need to be in the room where, where stuff are making decisions. That's not, doesn't define who you are. Like if you, if you're really good at changing diapers or like chopping onions or mowing the lawn, like that's great. Do that. Right. And so at least for me, I mean, this is where like, oddly enough, I am, I've, I have been, to hear myself talked about as centered is really funny because I always think of myself as a deeply insecure person. But one of the benefits of insecurity is that you also, you're really clear about what you're not good at. And so when I look at Gail, I feel like Gail is the quintessential pastor. Like I felt, and I felt called to ministry when I was really young or when I was 15, 16. And I looked at pastors and I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. I don't have the chops to do that. But when I see Gail, I'm like, oh, that's a pastor. That's what a pastor looks like. And so I'm really clear. Not only can I not do it, but if I'm really, really honest with myself, I actually wouldn't even be happy doing it. Hmm. And so it's really freeing, actually, to let go of the kind of authorizations that the society tells us. And then the second part is that the, this history of gender, that 
even in a room where the Gail and I are sitting there and Gail's the lead pastor, they're going to want to point to me. And so I actually have to go to even, I have to go overboard to point back to her. I have to shrink mm. myself smaller so that she can get the authority, the recognition that she needs. And that doesn't make me small, right? But I'm doing the job and because the, the configuration of histories and the way the light turns and all of this stuff is always going to try to push her into a corner. And if I'm her partner, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make sure that that doesn't happen. The hardest thing I've had in all this is not fighting people. Like, I just want to fight some folk because mm. folk be stupid. And I just, it takes everything yeah. in me to like see the person in church who I know just did some knuckleheaded thing and not get up in their face and let them know how they're participating in the patriarchal heteronormativity of whatever. And so, so I don't, so I don't know. I mean, so knowing a little bit about yourself, being honest with yourself and then kind of knowing history, I think are two big, big things. Yeah. And then Gail, what am I missing? Like, I think what, just even in asking that question and the framework of it, what, how am I approaching it in a way that I'm missing the female experience there? As far as the question you're asking? Oh, yeah. So, uh, or just yeah. in general, in general. Well, men probably in a room. both. Yeah. But yeah, well, even in the question that I'm asking, am I? Because obviously, like, I'm asking that out of my own framework and experience that I'm seeing in a certain kind of way. Yeah, no, I think you're asking a question that's, something that we see more frequently than not, unfortunately. Do I experience it from other men? Absolutely. But I think it's similar to what Brian said. I think men in general have to learn because they're so used to having things pointed to them that when you're in the presence of other women, and especially women who are leading something, to know your bodies and the work your body is doing and to make adjustments along the way, even if it means to shrink yourself. But I think this is a really good question for people to, to ask themselves and to be aware of when they're, they are in group settings. And not just between partners, but even between colleagues in your workplaces, the dynamics of that. I think it's really critical that we, we consider how we're engaged, what our tendencies are. Like who's the first person to actually answer a question in your staff meeting. And sometimes there's a pattern. And I've actually just made it plain on our staff many times where I was like, I just, I'm gonna ask a question I don't want the white man to answer first. And sometimes it's stunning for people, but you eventually do it enough where it just becomes a culture. Mm. So earlier, earlier, one of you mentioned, might've been Brian, about like that marriage is kind of falling by the wayside in some ways of like, in some ways out of maybe in, in the church space specifically, I could probably speak to that. Like one, we've missed validating the single experience. We have maybe, maybe we've over-centered a marriage nuclear family as like everything gets sort of like built out of this. And then there's like cultural things that seem to be feeding into it too. And like, is this a traditional thing that needs to go by the wayside? Does this still work? Is it still helpful? Is this still like the best thing for relationships to move towards and all of that? I would love to like, even just hear you guys speak a little bit into that, whether it's like 
what is the good of marriage? Should it be something that people are still trying to move towards? Is like, what does that all look like? I'll let Brian speak to this. He's it's it's beautiful. Oh, I, now now the pressure's on because I don't remember. I don't remember Husband, I, I give you permission to talk. <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks, love. Think I appreciate that. Let me speak. Yeah, I think that I think for us this idea of marriage is is still important, but it's it's one of the ways we talk about it in the in the book and the kind of beginning of it is to say that it's really it's really important to us that people understand that it is just one point in a kind of constellation of relationships that makes up our social world. It's not the epitome. It's not the height. Married folk aren't closer to the image of God. This notion of marriage as a kind of imagery of God's relationship to us and God's relationship inside of God's own, like, it's just weird. It's just weird to me. So it's, so this idea, but at the same time, it is a very real thing, right? This idea that, that, you know, our, Gail and I's relationship is different than a friendship. Like at any point, friends could decide not to be friends anymore and it will be painful and it will be scarring and traumatic. So, so again, the damage is not any less in lots of ways, but it's, but it's not the same thing as saying, I promised to be with you and for you forever. And now I'm not right. So there, there's something about that covenant that, binds us together in in a very particular way that requires us to walk through our life navigating and negotiating relationships in a very specific way, both for one another, for our immediate family, for for the, the people that we are with. And I think that that's I think that's important. And I think it it adds something to our to our world and to to the relationships around us that I think is important to hold on to and to cultivate, especially in a world where, frankly, things are so customizable. You know, like everyone has, you have your own playlist, you have your own Netflix watch list, you can figure out exactly what kind of things you want on your car. You know, you can order food from your phone and your whole, our whole world is customizable. And one of the things that marriages, marriages teaches us is what to live with what isn't customizable. What does it mean to grow into someone and with someone, even in the midst of their changing, even in the midst of your changing? And I think that that's a really powerful thing. Yeah, that's really good. Well, maybe you could wrap us up here by several folks that listen to this. A good number of them actually are involved in ministry in some sort of way, whether they're pastors or church leaders in some sort of way. I would love if you would just speak for a moment into like the uniqueness of marriage in that space navigating it in that space, it, whether you have some advice, a blessing, words of caution, things to think about? I Yeah, that's a really good question. I realized that the nature of ministry is so big and so vast and so different depending on context and the who. And I know that a lot of times marriages are are tested in the midst of leadership, in the midst of leading an organization, a church, and all the problems and the realities that come with leading. I would say that in my experience, I can only speak from my own experience that I hope we would see and continue to see our partners as our our greatest cheerleaders. 
And I think for me, the hardest um, part for me is when to shield Brian from certain things. But, and when I really need to share things with him for support. Because the uniqueness about church is that it's not only our job, it's both of our communities. It's our friends. It's our, it's our family. And so there's relationships there. So what are those moments when I need to allow Brian to have his relationships and his community, but at the same time, support and prayer and partnership in that? But I hope we as pastors and ministers and those who are leading would see our partners as our greatest cheerleaders and our greatest supporters in life and in ministry, because there is no separation at the end of the day. It is who we are. It's what we're called to. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Did you have something to add there? Well, I was just going to say, like, maybe from the other the other side of it, one of the things that that's I love about what Gail has done for me is like, well, I understand myself to be in ministry, both specifically, but also adjacent or tangentially through through Gail. Gail's never asked me to be the perfect husband, to be the free labor, to 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 be the one that's always at everything because that's what my role is. She's really welcomed me into to be a part of the community and to be a support and to be free, um, to be who I am in my limitations and my gifts in ways that I always kind of appreciate that allow me then to also be present for her when she needs that support. And so I think that's, I really appreciated her, her, her allowing me that freedom to be part of the community in that way. I love that. I love that. Well, where can folks find you on the internets that want to pay attention to what you're doing? And Yeah, our website is thebantamspace.com and they can find all of our information, our bio, our speaking engagements, our book, our upcoming book, and they can connect with us there and reach out to us. I love it. Are there going to start being some choosing us marriage retreats in like fancy places? You know what? One day, I hope. I yeah. hope. We're <laughs> going to ramp this thing up. Love yeah, it. Yeah, we'll see. We're excited to hear some of the kind of responses to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would anticipate um, that there's going to be a, like, I just have the sense that there's such a hunger and a need for people speaking into marriages in the way that you all are in, in both, like, there just aren't good that I'm aware of many good, like egalitarian marriage books that are out there. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to have people speaking into that, to be speaking into the layeredness of our experiences and all that we're bringing into marriage in that sort of way. Like it, there's so many things about it that seem fascinating to me. And I, like you said early on, Gail, like I don't really read many marriage books. I find right. them really boring and unhelpful. And I'm genuinely like really excited for your old book. And I would imagine mm -hmm. there's a lot of folks like me that that's going to be true of. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having us on to talk about it. Yeah. Thanks for making time today. It's Appreciate it. <laughs>